As I know there's been a couple weeks off here from Romans. I want to go back to the last time I was up here talking about Romans. And we were in uh, sort of the first part of Romans. And we talked about judging other people. It was a real light subject, wasn't it? Talked about judging other people, right? And we learned that it's kind of our tendency, isn't it, to just grab justice on our own and use justice and wield it and just sort of execute justice on other people ourselves. And it creates this world where we talk about kind of a a religious ladder where we go, I'm going to go up the religious ladder and try to push other people down the religious ladder. But we learn what Paul tells us in Romans is that the judge is not us. The judge is God. God is the judge And so when we do that and we pull ourselves up the moral ladder and we push other people down the moral ladder, we're really just being self-righteous, right? Instead, what Paul calls us to do is to see ourselves as sinners, just like everybody else on the same level. And we're going to talk about that some more today because when we can do that, when we can see ourselves as equal as sinners with other people, then we have the opportunity to share the free gift of salvation clearly with other people because the difference between me and a person who's lost is not sin. The difference between me and a person who's lost is I've come to see and receive the free gift of salvation. And I go, well, then the only difference is that person just hasn't received it, and so I have this opportunity to share it with them. And so then a couple weeks ago, Brad came up, and he, he followed that, and he had a lot of great things to say. And if I can grab onto just one thing he said was this, that God, God is just, God is the judge, and thankfully God is impartial. He is impartial, right? Somebody even this week asked me the question, they said, why doesn't God just stop all of the evil? Why doesn't he just stop all of the bad stuff? Why? And I go, man, that is a great question, and maybe you've asked that question too. And my response to that is is really this. We all like to say that, don't we? And we like to exclude ourselves from God stopping all the evil. We say, I want him to stop all the evil that's out there, but not me, right? I don't want the justice to be brought down on me. And we go, okay. We can sort of walk into that and we say, all right, at some point, God will sit in judgment. He will. The Bible tells us the day is coming. He's going to judge it. He is going to stop the evil. He's going to do it. It's going to happen. And it's going to be all sin, including my own sin. And justice is going to be served. And so we have to really understand justice is going to be served in one of two ways. The first way is justice will be served upon the sinner, upon you and upon me. That's our choice. We could say, all right, there's no getting out of it. Justice is going to be served, and so it's either going to be served on me or it's going to be served on Christ. And the only way my sin is going to be served on Christ is if I receive that free gift of salvation. And so notice in that scenario, again, there's no good works. It's not, oh, well, there's a third option where if I'm a really, really good person, whatever that means, that's where I'll get out of justice. Nope. Justice is going to be served. It's either going to be on you or it's going to be on Christ. And so that's what Brad talked about a couple weeks ago. And as we think through that and we go, wow, even though it's true that justice is going to be served one of those ways and good works don't play into it, we still have this problem, don't we? This problem where we go, man, it's a tendency to just be self-righteous, a tendency to be works-righteous, a tendency to just say, hey, I'm going to be religious. 
And that brings us back here into Romans and to our next passage. And so we'll continue on here with the passage of Romans after kind of a little bit of review. It's on the screen. You can always follow along in your Bible as well, and I'll read it. Paul says, in light of that, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so that's the passage we're going to look at this morning, and there's a lot here, and we could really dissect it in a lot of ways, but here's where I want to start, is at the beginning of that passage in verse 17. Paul says, But if you call yourself a Jew. And there's a picture of some guys, and there's, you know, I have a lot of respect for Jewish culture and the Jewish people, and I think there's a lot of good there, and there's a picture of them, and there we go. And, you know, we might read this and go, oh, well, I don't call myself a Jew. There's probably just a couple of us here. I know, I think Tim Sexton, I'm not sure if he's still in here, maybe he's in nursery. He's got some Jewish descent. And then Brad, too. Brad's got some Jewish Brad is probably the closest to a Jew we have. We just need to get a black hat on him, and he could go up and dance with these guys, right? <laughs> but most of us would go, Whew, well, I don't consider myself Jewish, so I can just tune out this passage, right? That's not what Paul is saying. Because it's not really about being, quote-unquote, a Jew, My contention would be that Paul was really writing to religious people of the day. Right? See, at this point, he's writing to the church in Rome, and Christianity had not really been around very long. And I would say, well, at this point, there probably weren't religious Christian Gentiles in the sense of they were caught up in doing a bunch of religious sort of things, and they had gotten that messed up. Instead, it was Jews, people who had held on to this law. They were struggling with, how do I reconcile this Jewish law and God's grace? And we see that throughout the New Testament. And so I think Paul was writing to them because that's kind of who they were, but it was meant to apply to all of us. So when he says, he calls himself a Jew, he doesn't just mean, oh, well, if you're not Jewish, you don't have to listen to this. I think what he was saying is this. If you call yourself a believer in God, and rely on moral rules and boast about God. 
Now that starts to hit a little bit closer to home, doesn't it? So I think before we go any further, we probably ought to define the concept of religious person because I understand that religion can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So as I read Romans and I read elsewhere in the New Testament, this is what I think Paul is saying and we'll use this definition, which is that a religious person relies on their moral actions or lack of immoral actions to establish their standing with God. So today, let's be really clear here that we want to, that's going to be our definition of what a religious person is. It doesn't mean something else, this is what it means. And maybe when we look at this definition, we might think of some extreme examples, right? You think around us and we go, wow, there's some really religious people. And I always, to me, what comes to my mind is the Amish, right? And I don't know if any of you guys know Jonathan. He's got some experience. He's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's got some experience with the Amish. And I just wanted to put a little... (laughs) Don't drink or drive. (laughs) I love it, right? But we think about, oh, people are relying on their moral actions. And maybe these people, and maybe not all of them, and I don't want to pronounce judgment on a group of people. It's just what kind of comes to my mind when I think of a religious person. If you want some good Amish stories, talk to Jonathan. He'll tell you some great Amish stories. I have to say is the Weird Al song is actually probably fairly accurate to life. But anyway, there's a much broader and more personal application for what Paul is talking about here. We talk about religious people. What is Paul saying about religious people? He says that when we choose, and we each choose, when each of us is going to make a choice to be a religious person, we move away from God. Which is funny, right? Because we think, I'm going to be religious, I'm going to be getting closer to God. But in fact, what he's telling us is we're going the opposite way. And we do that in a few ways. And so we'll go through a few of those, kind of verse by verse this morning. The first thing is that we become prideful when we become a religious person. He says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. So what is pride? It's not a group of lions. I mean, that is a pride. But what is pride when it comes to this passage? Well, I think we could define it this way. It's a feeling or a deep pleasure, or satisfaction that is derived from one's own achievements. Or from the achievements of those with whom one is closely associated. So, it's a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one, one's own achievements, or the achievements of a group that you're closely associated So, it's really easy for us, right? To become prideful means, whoa, I'm really proud. I'm really excited about my accomplishments or the group of people I'm part of. And so we put this in the context of moral rules. We see that, hey, when it comes to being religious and comes to being this religious person, remember, again, a religious person, we're relying on our moral actions or lack of immoral actions to establish our standing with God. When we do that, what are we focused on? Focused on our own actions. But the Bible and Christ, it really tells us we should be focused on forgiveness from Jesus, not on our own actions. And then we also start to minimize our sin. But when we minimize our sin, we're minimizing God's grace. We're saying, look at what I do. When we really should be saying, look at what Christ has done. So we become prideful. And this pride takes us away from God by getting us focused on ourselves. The second thing I think he says is that we take on a superiority complex. 
If you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law of embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's what he was dealing with. If any of you ever had somebody talk down to you, maybe like at work, like a boss or a coworker or someone who's like, oh, well, I know this, and they sort of talk to you like, like it says there, a teacher of children, and you're like, wait, I'm not a child. Right, we all kind of know what that's like, and maybe that person really is smart, or maybe they really are gifted, but when you think about it, and you step back, you go, what is the purpose of that person talking that way to me? Well, their purpose is to kind of make me feel defeated, isn't it? It's trying to create a moral ladder. Where they're up the ladder and I'm down the ladder, right? And so it's the same when it comes to religious superiority. See, when you take on a superiority complex in the religious sense, since the intent is it, it's to make other people feel defeated and to make me feel better about myself. But that's not what God wants for us. He wants us to say, no, I'm a sinner saved by grace just like you. The only difference between you and me is that I've received the free gift of salvation and you can receive it too. And so this superiority complex takes us away from God because it minimizes God's grace. Third thing is we take on an us versus them worldview. I love that part there in verse 20. If you're sure that you are a light to those who are in darkness... Personally, I think so much of the cultural strife we see in America around us today is due to this very mentality of an us versus them mentality, and it's on all sides of the issues. It's so easy to kind of get into our own echo chamber and kind of hear only the things we want to hear, the things that agree with the views that we have. And when we do that, we sort of build up this thing in our lives. We start to say, well, I'm a light to your darkness But for those of us who profess to follow Christ, I ask this, who is the light in the darkness? Well, it's right there in John chapter 8. Jesus, he says, I am the light of the world. And you've probably seen that as you came in on our artwork out there in the cafe. And we have that to remind us that the light of the world is not us. If it's us, it's only because Christ is shining through us. Christ says, I am the light of the world, and that's what we live by. That is what we live by. And so for, our, for Christ's light to shine through us, we have to recognize that each one of us is not up some ladder. We're on that same level, the same level of sin together. And so we need to walk away from this us versus them mentality because when we do that, it takes us away from God because we focus on how we're different from other people. And God doesn't want us to do that. The fourth thing is that we become hypocrites. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And of course the answer to all those rhetorical questions is, yeah, you do. I love how Paul doesn't even have to answer the question. He's like, yep, you do that, and you know that you do that. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, where hypocrisy is, is doing one thing, but saying that the opposite thing is the correct thing to do. And sadly, but probably appropriately, non-Christians are constantly pointing this out, aren't they? You hypocrites. You hypocrites. See that pastor who con- condemned adultery yet was caught in a fair... 
and so on and so forth. And I think that's what Paul is really hitting at, that holding on to religion and making a moral ladder is really just hypocritical, isn't it? It's just hypocritical. So here's the deal. We've got to, if we've got to accept that we're sinners, if we can accept that, and if we are sinners and we accept that and we accept that we're thankful for God's gracious forgiveness, then we can be looking for other ways to help sinners receive that forgiveness. We can't do that when we're hypocritical. Hypocrisy takes us away from God because it just denies the truth of our own sinfulness. We don't want to do that. So then the fifth thing Paul says about this is that we bring discredit to God when we become a religious person. It moves us away from God because we bring discredit to Him. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And in this sense, when we think about religion as relying on moral actions to establish our standing with God, I really got to believe religion is a tool of Satan. We might think, oh, it's actually kind of a good... No, it's not good. It's a tool of Satan. Because, see, if God has devised this awesome way, and it's a non-religious way for us to be reconciled to Him, if He's designed that thing and we turn and twist it into something that rejects or denies that, that is going to point people away from what God has established. The way He's established to get reconciled to Him, it points people away from it. And I think that's far worse for somebody than just not knowing what it is. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. I think that's true. I think that's true. So instead of this, instead of moving away from God, instead of being religious, we should be aiming to move closer to God. Kind of a no-brainer. We should just align our hearts with God, which... Seems like common sense for sure that we don't do this. And the church hasn't done this. Love this quote from John Calvin. If the preacher is not first preaching to himself, better that he falls on the step of the pulpit and breaks his neck than preaches that sermon. That's convicting. Pray for me as I prepare and Brad too. So what's been helpful to me on my journey of faith when I think about how do I get my heart aligned with God's? How do I get it aligned with God's? I want to move closer to God. How do I align with God? What helps me is preaching the gospel to myself daily. Preach the gospel to myself daily. And daily, it means reminding myself this. First, that my sin is really deeper than I could have even imagined. When I first started out, I thought I was a bad sinner. The more I go along, the worse I really understand that I am. That's the bad news, but the good news and the gospel that I preach to myself is this, is that God's grace is greater than I could have ever dreamed. Because the more I understand how sinful I am, the greater God's grace is because that sin is forgiven. So we want to preach this gospel to ourselves daily. See, here at the Firehouse Church, and if you're new here, you're probably noticing this is kind of a funny building. And our church is not a building. But this building, I really believe, by God's grace, is a picture of the gospel. This building is a picture of the gospel because what's really important is not the building. 
the light that's inside it. It's the lives that has changed. It's all of you. Everyone who makes up this church family, that's what's really important. And if you look at this building, we haven't gone and turned it into some sort of beautiful object of art. I think it's probably obvious if you look at this building that the light is what's inside. It's not the building. And yet, we see evidence of redemption in this building. Sometimes just go into my office and take a look at the before and the after pictures and we see how things change. And so at this church, we want everybody to be able to clearly articulate the gospel. We want you to clearly articulate the gospel for yourselves because then you can preach the gospel to yourself daily. We can get our hearts aligned with God. And we also want to do that because then we let Christ's light shine to others. The last thing, the last thing we want. Like if this, if this happens to us, we're just going to close the church. If we all just become a bunch of religious people in this church, we're just going to close the doors and say we're done. Because we're not going to be religious people. That's the last thing we want to do. Instead, we want to have our hearts aligned with God. And we want to be pointing people towards reconciliation with God. So, in addition, we should let goodness flow. We should let goodness flow out of us from the Holy Spirit that lives within us. When you receive that free gift of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. And Paul addresses this in our passage in Romans by talking about circumcision. (laughs) Right? So let's take a look at circumcision. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to put any pictures of it up on the board. That's kind of weird, right? For us, it's kind of strange. We go, circumcision? It's it's just like a medical procedure, right? I've got, as Brad mentioned, I've got six kids and four of them were boys. And, you know, you go into the hospital and they go, do you want to have this done? You go, yep, sounds good to me. And they say, do you want to watch? And I said, no way. (laughs) And I let them go off and they had their medical procedures done and it's common to most people in our culture today and so if we just sort of hear that word and we go oh that's kind of strange what is a medical procedure but this is not what Paul was talking about because originally it was not a medical procedure in that sense for the people of Israel the Jewish people circumcision was established first as a sign of God's covenant you go back to Genesis 17 God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. And then this is a sign that God has made a covenant with the people. And then second, it's a mark. Obviously, it's a mark upon a man. A mark of a man's commitment to obey the Lord. But it disintegrated over the centuries, even within Jewish culture. Instead of becoming a mark of commitment, it became the commitment. And by the first century, when Jesus was walking around, many rabbis were saying, hey, if you're circumcised, it's an automatic ticket to heaven. That's not what it said. That's not what it was. That's not what it's about. And so Paul clues us into that later in Romans. He says, Abraham, the first guy who had this happen, the first guy, he received the sign of circumcision. Why? As a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. While he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision was originally intended to be an outward symbol of an inward reality. And so Paul is saying this, don't let an outward action become a mask for an inward sin. Don't let it hide what's going on inside because it can't, right? I don't know if you guys like jelly beans. I like jelly beans. 
But my kids sort of clued me in that there's this weird thing. They're like deceptive jelly beans. Have any of you guys heard of this? They're called like bean boozled or something like that. And they look like tasty jelly beans, but they have gross flavors like sweaty socks. And I don't know, just like gross stuff. But they just look like nice jelly beans. And so I think part of the game is that you get some and they're mixed in the good ones and the bad ones and you eat it. And you're like, ugh. It sounds terrible to me, doesn't it? I don't know, does it sound terrible to you? It has no appeal to me whatsoever. And so when we become religious, I think that's just a picture of what's going on. When we become religious... It's like trying to put on this good, sweet exterior that looks like things are okay, but it masks what's really disgusting and awful inside of us, right? And this doesn't just happen here in this passage of Romans. We see it elsewhere. Jesus himself speaks about it in Luke chapter 11, speaking to the Pharisees. He says, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup, talking about them, and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. He talks about them being tombs that are whitewashed and cleaned up on the outside, but inside is death and decay. Jesus talks about that, and the Pharisees were really just super religious people who had built this ladder and were trying to pull themselves up and push other people's down. He says, you clean the outside, but inside is messed up. And to us in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Let your light shine. Let your light shine. What's our light? Jesus Christ. Let Jesus Christ shine through you before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in the heavens. Jesus emphasizes here that goodness flows out of the light inside. The light is not the good works. The light is inside and the good works flow from that. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, that mark or not that mark, counts for anything but only faith working through love. Paul reminds us again that what is on the outside, that mark, is only meaningful. It's only meaningful if the inside is changed. And that happens through faith. And then that faith is expressed through love. So as we conclude this morning, let's look at verse 29 in our passage in Romans. Paul says, No one is a Jew is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so to get to the heart of this, I think it really helps to understand even what the term Jew means, as Paul meant it. See, in Hebrew, the term actually means praise to God, praise to Yahweh. So a person who says, I am a Jew, is effectively saying, I am a praise to God. You can even see throughout history, it's often been used as a title, right? Like someone might, you know, if I was a doctor, or actually, I am an architect, right? And so sometimes I sign my name, Greg Miller, comma, R-A, which stands for Registered Architect, right? Sometimes a Jew might have said, if I was Jewish, I'd say Greg Miller, comma, Jew. That's how it's been said, as kind of a title. I am a praise to God, is what you would be saying. And so, can you see the original intent? When we go back to Genesis and we look at what that was all about... 
You're supposed to be saying, hey, I'm a praise to God, meaning I'm set apart because my life is devoted to bringing praise to God from the inside. But over time, men have corrupted this, and it became to be something where it was saying, hey, God, I am a, I'm a praise to God. God is praised by my existence and my heritage and my outward religion. That's not what they were aiming for. It got turned backwards. The focus went from God to self. And that's where those super religious Pharisees were that Jesus was talking to. And it carried on down. And some of those converts there in Rome that Paul was writing to were operating in the same manner. And so now look back at verse 29 here on the screen. And I took the liberty of looking at some of the Greek. And I'm no Greek scholar. I don't have a master of divinity. But you could look at the words. And I was like, wow, I think I could kind of paraphrase this in a way. Because I think Paul is doing something here in this verse. Notice how if a Jew is a praise to God and his praise is what's going on. Well, I went ahead and and did a little of my own paraphrase here. So this, you know, I don't quote this as scripture per se, but I think it helped me understand this. And I'm going to use the term man. Obviously, woman would be implied as well. It was just easier to say man instead of man or woman. But you get the deal. Here's what I think it says is that a man is not a praise to God if he only seems to be on the outside and his commitment to God is not merely shown on the body. Instead, a man is a praise to God if he praises God first in places that are unseen by other people. And the mark of his commitment is placed on his heart by God as a result of his faith commitment. If so, then this praise to God is receiving praise from God, not from other people. So can you catch what Paul is pointing out to us here? The focus of our lives should be on God, not on our good works. The focus of our lives should be on God, not on our own good works. And so a couple last thoughts here. First is that a person is marked by his or her commitment to God, not committed to God by how marked he or she is. Did you catch that? Let it sink in. You can't mark yourself up. You can't be religious as a means of committing to God because being religious is really just about you. Being religious is just about getting yourself closer to God and trying to push other people down that ladder. And it can't work. It doesn't work because in the end, justice is going to be served and it's going to come down on either you or Christ. A person does not bring glory to God by bringing glory to themselves. You can't fake it. No one is fooled by this when you try to do it. And if you do, what did Jesus said? Woe to you, you fools. Because you're bringing discredit onto God's plan of salvation for other people. I think about it. I don't know. Is anybody here in the Marines? You were in the Marines. Did you get a tattoo? But you could. right? A lot of Marines get a tattoo. Now, the rest of us... We could go out and get a Marines tattoo, couldn't we? <laughs> like, I'm in the Marines, or whatever it say, the, 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 whatever division. That's good. You could, right? If, an, if a tattoo artist would give you the tattoo, you could go put a Marines tattoo on your arm, right? 
And what would you be trying to say? I'm in the Marines? I mean, maybe that's what you're trying to say. Like, I'm trying to be cool. I'm trying to go into the bar and be like, hey, look, I was in the Marines and people respect you or something, right? But you would be dishonest because you're not in the Marines, right? It would be dishonest because you're not. And it would also discredit and it would cheapen the service that Mike and others have given. People would begin to then distrust the Marines who actually did have those tattoos and say, I'm not sure I can really trust that you are a Marine. That seems weird. You're just one of those liars who went and got one at the tattoo shop. Your attempt to bring glory to yourself backfires because it actually makes you look bad. But worse, it turns people away. And so when we put that into the faith context and we look at religion, we go, if I'm going to be religious, not only does it make me look bad because everyone's going to see through that I'm a hypocrite, but it's going to take people and it's going to point them away from the plan to salvation. So I'd ask you this here as I close. Where are you at with all of this? What are you trusting in? Are you trying to be religious? And so that's my encouragement to you today. Look to God's light to shine through you. And I would encourage you, be a praise to God.